I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're coming to you. We're taping this the day after a fairly big report dropped in The Intercept. We're going to start with that story via Rachel, who I'm eager to hear her thoughts on uh, the story. Then we're going to go to Josh, who's going to talk to us just about what to expect on Election Day, because we're less than a week out from Election Day 2022. Then Ben is going to talk about the very strange story uh, of the Pelosi home invasion as it continues to unfold. And I'll talk about a new survey from the Institute for Family Studies and the Wheatley Institute uh, that shows families that are intact uh, are able to handle the problems of big tech better. So with that, I'll kick it over to you, Rachel. Yeah, so this is a pretty enormous story, um, although it, it I think, is just more evidence of, of what a lot of us have been saying for a long time and, and things that we've seen already from FOIA requests from very many groups, which is how closely the White House has been working with the tech companies to determine what people can say online. But what is new and I think pretty explosive about this latest tranche of documents, which comes to us by way of uh, a lawsuit filed by the attorney general out of Missouri, Eric Schmidt, is just how willing a participant big tech was in this stuff. So it wasn't simply the government reaching out to these companies and saying, oh, can you consider doing this? You had big tech executives serving on disinformation boards within the White House, serving on councils, helping them set up disinformation protocols within the White House itself. And there is this uh, narrative that's developing already from com- uh, organizations like NetChoice, which represent the big tech companies. And the narrative is, oh, we are just victims of the big bad government bullying us <laughs> to take down this content. And isn't it awful, you know, what the government is doing to us? Oh, bad government, bad government. And that is, of course, half true, right? You you know, the government has always had an interest in narrative, inf- in narrative control and controlling speech, all the way from, you know, back to Operation Mockingbird you know, where the CIA really tried to manipulate the narrative through the major cable companies. The government is always trying to do this. But what's different here is that the willingness of the tech companies to partner in this initiative at no point in any of these documents and emails, do you see the tech companies saying, oh, you know, we're really sort of uncomfortable with this or, oh, I don't know that we should do this. We should, you know, maybe uh, or flat out refusal, right? The same way that Apple refused to unlock the phone of the San Bernardino shooter or the same way that Twitter has gone to court on several occasions to push back against law enforcement, demanding access to DMs and things like this. You do not see any of that pushback. So it's a little bit rich and ridiculous from my perspective for these companies to say, oh, you know, suddenly, you know, after serving on all these disinformation boards and helping develop these protocols, we are just shocked. We are shocked uh, that the government would do this. Um, You know, and I think it's also interesting the type of information the government was trying to assess. It wasn't simply, you know, trying to take down. It wasn't simply, you know, uh, COVID-19 misinformation, although there was plenty of aggression around what people could say about COVID. It was also controlling speech around what people could say about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, about the U.S. positioning on Ukraine, um, around any number of controversial political issues, which I think shows a very significant leap uh, in what's happening here. And I just want to go back, one, one final thought before I kick it open to the group. I, you know, I've said this in many public forum, forums before, but my interest in in and skepticism of the tech companies was really uh, generated by 
the Snowden leaks. Uh, the last time we saw this really hand in glove relationship with the tech companies was back in 2013 via the Prism program, where the government was working through the back doors of Google, Dropbox, Facebook, you know, all these companies to gain access to information on U.S. citizens. That to me should have thrown up the red flag for all of us to say these companies are, are you know, there's a business model here that can be exploited by the government and may continue to be exploited by the government. Um, this was the case that I made starting back in 2019 very publicly saying, you know, there's more to what's going on here that, that this, you know, when everyone said it's not censorship, if the government's not doing it, you know, I, this was just waiting to happen. And so I think what we're seeing here is, is the prison program, but just with the official imprimatur of the government far and away outside of, of mere surveillance. This is actual narrative control. So in, you know, I, I'll save the rest of my thoughts for, for final thoughts where I want to address a little bit of what I think can be done here. Um, but it's not an easy public policy solution. But I think we are in uncharted territory in the sense of we have huge technology companies working hand in glove with the government in unprecedented ways. Uh, we're we're post-dystopian. Like, it's just dystopian even cover it anymore. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I guess my basic take is, and maybe I'm just overly cynical or overly jaded when we talk about these issues, very little, if anything, surprises me at this point when it comes to topics pertaining to kind of the state corporate fusion of power and big tech collusion with the Biden administration. I mean, the states of Louisiana and Missouri are in the midst of high-profile litigation seeking to expose the very depth of that collusion. I think, you know, we've done previous segments on this podcast when Attorney General Eric Schmidt, future Senator Eric Schmidt of Missouri, had this pretty epic tweet thread. It was, I think it was in late August, if I remember it correctly here, basically exposing mildly redacted emails about the extent to which, you know, all the top dogs at Meta, Facebook, were at Twitter, Google, other companies were in active coordination, in active coordination with the Biden White House during the depths of the pandemic and kind of the summer of 2021 or so around the same time that Jen Psaki was standing there at the White House podium, basically saying, oh, no, of course, we're working with Mark Zuckerberg to stamp out COVID misinformation. So, I mean, this is our reality. I mean, the reality at this point is that the term private to refer to these companies means extremely little at this point. We should think of them as public sector adjacent, potentially even kind of public sector co-opted. And, you know, I, I guess that is kind of one element of so-called knowing what time it is when it comes to this particular discussion is understanding that we are in a, a new post-dystopian, to use Rachel's, I think, quite accurate language, uh, in a new kind of post-dystopian era of full-on state corporate fusion. You know, I gave a recent speech at Claremont Institute's uh, Constitution Day Symposium in uh, mid-September kind of talking about this, talking about deplatforming, debanking. And, you know, we talk about remedies on this show a lot, but I mean, to me, the, the path forward is, is, is fairly clear. It, it's two-pronged. One is legislatively, which I think we have to kind of add political ideology or political orientation or political party registration, something along those lines, as a, as a protected class under the ambit of the civil rights statutes, including the 1964 Civil Rights Act. You know, I understand in kind of the abstract, maybe we want to start trimming down those instead of adding to it, but the reality is it's just not going anywhere. So we kind of add the hat, we have to play the hand that we're dealt with. And then from a regulation perspective or a legislation perspective, I mean, you know, I've been a vocal proponent of the of, over the last year or two for common carrier regulation for these companies as well. And, you know, I, I think many were kind of initially resistant to that, but I, I just think that's where we are right now. I mean, it's kind of just an empirical descriptive reality of what these firms are and how close they are already to the nexus of power in Washington, D.C. 
I think one of the interesting distinctions between the era, and, and there are clear parallels here with the, the kind of Snowden leaks and what we discovered through all of that, but I think one of the biggest distinctions explains one of the biggest sort of shifts in our politics, which is that the DHS, for the most part, I mean, yes, this is a lot of the intercept report is built around leaks. That's true. Um, but the Facebook website, you can, like anyone can go to it. You can't log in unless you have a government email, but it's right there. The Facebook website where government employees are encouraged to submit disinformation uh, for big tech to track and monitor. By the way, Facebook also owns Instagram. So <clears throat> when we say big tech, that's what we mean uh, in a very literal sense. It's huge. Uh, and the power is huge that comes with it. And so I think what, what was really concerning about all of this, uh, to Josh's point, is that, for instance, a lot of it was said by Jen Psaki out in the open. The disinformation government board was something that they were boasting about. They wanted people to see it. Um, and, and I think that's increasingly what is terrifying about all of this is that they're not doing it in the dark. Doing it in the dark is really scary too. But I'm actually more afraid of the mentality that's not shamed one bit by the fact that they want to track every single thing that you are saying. The example of the uh, the Blucifer guy, that's the horse outside the Denver airport. Um, he, that's his name is Blucifer, and there was a, a Twitter account, a few Twitter accounts that apparently were, uh, they had parody, this particular Twitter account in the inter Intercept report uh, that shows the government freaking out about an account that identifies itself as a parody account of the Colorado government. They say that they're parody accounts and the government is going after them. I mean, it's just completely outrageous. But the big thing to pay attention to, I think, is the fact that increasingly um, this was a, this was a, a fairly open campaign to get government employees to submit this stuff on their own. They weren't trying that hard to hide it. Um, and, and I think what's what's happening is you see the censoriousness coming out of the shadows and, and being sort of a, a critical uh, pillar of that progressive ideology now, which is te technocracy in the sort of panopticonic uh, sense of, you know, we're, we're always going to watch what you say um, because everything is a threat and everything is hateful. Well, uh, one minor observation and then a couple deeper ones. Uh, it's worth noting that Lee Fang, who is one of the authors bylined on this Intercept piece, got savaged by blue checks on social media for having the utter gall to go on Tucker Carlson's show and talk about this report, which I think tells you everything you need to know about the mind meld that exists now between essentially the, the entire progressive left almost uh, uniformly and our ruling regime um, and how much there's been a just total shift in positions. And we've known this, of course, uh, to now conservatives in this country and populists and people of all political stripes and maybe party identifications as well. Uh, who view the primary clash that exists here as between a ruling regime that seeks total power and then seeks to subjugate anyone who dares to dissent on any of a million issues. And it's worth noting that in the course of that intercept piece, they reference the fact that the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which I go back to again and again, codifies this precise behavior. And it's worth noting, again, the language in that document. The fourth pillar of that document, it's called Confront Long-Term Contributors to Domestic Terrorism. And how does it conclude? It says that there is a broader priority for the government to enhance faith in itself and address the extreme polarization fueled by a crisis of disinformation and misinformation often channeled through social media platforms, which can tear Americans apart and lead to some violence. A hallmark of this democracy is that political change must be pursued through nonviolent means grounded in the principles upon which the U.S. was founded. 
boilerplate language there based upon the people who drafted this language. Enhancing faith in American democracy demands accelerating work to contend with an information environment that challenges, quote unquote, healthy democratic discourse. We will work towards finding ways to counter the influence and impact of dangerous conspiracy theories that can provide a gateway to terrorist violence. That is the direct language that gets you to what was revealed here. And the question is, what are Republicans going to do about it, assuming they take the House and probably the Senate as well over the next two years to get to the bottom of who is behind that document and ripping it apart root and branch from American policy? And if they're not ready to do that, what are these power bodies going to do in the run-up to 2024? And what are they doing, by the way, right now in the run-up to these midterm elections? All questions worth asking and all initiatives worth demanding of our purported representatives over the next two years. Josh, what should we be watching for on election day as it comes up in just under a week? It is coming up in less than a week. Very exciting. We've talked about this for months and months on end. Uh, shameless plug. I mean, I this I, I have my own Newsweek podcast this week. I had Harry Enton of CNN to kind of break down a lot of these kind of horse race elections for us. Um, you know, some people will hear CNN, hear fake news, whatever. Harry's actually one of the last remaining straight shooters and all this. So go, go ahead and check that out. So th there's not really any like specific race that I kind of want to flag here. I wanted to just talk about kind of a broader 35,000 foot altitude view of the playing field right now. So uh, in a previous show, we talked about kind of how the red wave looked like it was going to form over the summer, and then look, it looked like it was going to die for about four or five weeks. There was kind of the post-Dobbs backlash. looks like it might be a thing, and now all the signs look like the, the red wave is back. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot to kind of break down here. One thing that is just continually interesting to me is the disparity between what the polling averages say, real clear politics, polling averages. And, you know, I mean, I saw a poll literally before we hit the recording button for this very show that showed J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan tied 46-46 in Ohio. I mean, does anyone think that J.D. Vance is going to lose in Ohio? I mean, you know, I, I have some oceanfront property um, in Ohio, for that matter, to sell you if you actually think that that is the case. So there's a huge disparity between what the polling averages are showing and what the actual money is showing. So if you look at where the campaigns are actually pouring in money right now, the campaigns, the RGA, the uh, the Democratic Governors Association, the NRCC, the, uh, and the Democratic equivalents, the Democrats right now are actually pumping in money in New York State to make sure that Kathy Hochul is not upset by Lee Zeldin in that gubernatorial race. They're doing a very similar strategy out in Oregon right now to make sure that Oregon does not go red in the governor's mansion. In Washington State, a lot of Dems are starting to fret about the fate of, of even Patty Murray uh, as Trafalgar, Robert Cahalli, the chief pollster there, now has Tiffany Smiley ahead of uh, Patty Murray, which would be a massive, massive coup. So, you know, I guess it's time to kind of just, you know, throw some points on the board and, you know, uh, make some predictions, I guess. So I, I think I think my final number is 5347 Republican majority. At this point, I honestly would not be surprised if that number got up to 54, 55 or something like that. Uh, you know, I think New Hampshire is absolutely in play right now. And, you know, that that number 53 at this point is going to include. Republican holds in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So that means that J.D. Vance wins. That means that Dr. Oz uh, defeats John Fetterman. We discussed that horrific debate by Fetterman at length on last week's show. And then that's, that's also going to mean Republican pickups in Arizona and Nevada. So, uh, you know, looking at New Hampshire, that, that, that looks to me like it's eminently plausible. A true red wave, I think, would, would, would indeed knock out Patty Murray there in Washington State. It could, it could knock out easily Michael Bennett, who is a thoroughly unimpressive political talent there in the state of Colorado. We'll see if if, uh, if Joe O'Day can pull that off. The, the governor's races are potentially just as interesting. If you look at real clear politics right now, their prediction is 3119. So Republicans will control 31 of the 50 governor's mansions. 
I could easily see that going up as well to potentially to, to, to 32 or 33. And uh, one other thing to look for, and I kind of discussed this with Harry on, on my Newsweek podcast this week, is I personally am looking for the extent of the Hispanic shift to the Republican Party. That is one thing that a lot of people have talked a lot about over the past few years. If you look at the 2020 election, uh, you know, the Trump-Pence campaign made massive, massive gains in the Hispanic vote in places as, fa as far-ranging as the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. So counties like Star County, Texas, Zapata County, Texas, these are literally like 90, 95% Mexican counties. Funny, I actually remember those counties back when I was a corporate lawyer at Kirkland Ellis in Houston because there were oil and gas assets there. So it was kind of funny to me to see those kind of counties kind of get into the political game as well. In 2020, of course, Miami-Dade County, right near where I live here in Florida, shifted massively towards Trump. He still lost it, but a lot of people are looking to see whether Ron DeSantis can actually cleanly win Miami-Dade County, which is the most populous county in Florida. It's a 70% Hispanic county. In Nevada right now, the polling for Laxalt and Lombardo, the GOP's gubernatorial candidate, showing basically a coin flip with the Hispanic vote. So I'm very much looking for that. But I guess I'll kind of just throw it open on that very open-ended note. I mean, like, what specifically are you guys looking for? Are there any races that you're paying particular attention to? And, I, you know, to the extent that you want to play the prediction game, what kind of final numbers are you guys looking at? So one thing I'm actually pretty interested in seeing the effect on is there was a, a piece I was reading this morning that looking at the shift among white suburban women towards Republicans. And this is something I think may actually be underpolled. And it's something that I think is the COVID effect, the culture war effect, something that we've talked about, I think, before on this podcast. But like, you know, when you have the Democrats aggressing against public schools, right, keeping the kids out of school, uh, putting boys against the, you know, girls in their sports teams, all this stuff, when you confront parents with this, it doesn't matter kind of what side of the aisle you're on, that the parent's going to vote to protect their kid. That's just like an almost impulsive, reflexive response. And I think that might be what we're seeing a little bit here now with this shift. Um, it looks like 26 percentage points away from Democrats uh, since August, and they now favor the GOP by 15 points. That's a, that's an incredible shift. I, but there's another side of that, which is I think this could be beneficial to Republicans in, in this election. But I think Republicans always learn the wrong lesson from this stuff. They're like, oh, you know, they're coming to us because we're so wonderful. And then, you know, they offer them nothing. Right. <laughs> they offer them the same old pablum about, you know, I don't know, indexing capital gains to inflation or something. When in reality, these these voters are not Republican voters. They're coming to the Republican Party because the Democrats have just royally screwed up. Uh, and they're coming to the Republican Party with hopes that they will make the beating stop. And so unless the Republicans are prepared to do something about that, you know, we haven't actually remade the party. So prepare yourself now for if this swing is real, all these takes to, that are like, oh, Republicans have remade the party. No, 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 no. If this if this if these voters stay with Republicans in the next cycle, then you can maybe argue the, the party has been remade. But um, anyway. That's just my two cents. No, that's I was just on uh, but just before we started taping this, I was uh, taping with Megan Kelly. And one of the things she was talking about was the New York gubernatorial race and how you've seen a surge from Lee Zeldin uh, to what appears right now to be a razor thin margin with Kathy Hochul, who was up by almost 20 points just in August. Um, and I think this is an instructive race. Like New York is perennially wildly overcovered. Like every time it snows in New York, suddenly the media wants to talk about the snowstorms uh, across the country that are actually 
actually just happening in New York. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, the, the whole country is suffering, but it's it's just New York. No offense, Rachel, uh, but you're not from the city, so that's fine. Uh, it, but the, all that is to say, what's actually happening in New York, I think is really, really interesting because what you're seeing um, is people coming and, and voting for a, a Republican, probably voting for a Republican, um, because the Republican is somebody who's at least not dismissing crime and at least not dismissing inflation. That doesn't mean Republicans in the future are going to be able to capture those exact same those exact same voters. Um, because it's a totally different thing in different contexts you know the the suburban women vote is a great example because if they're you know turned off so turned off by donald trump that they're voting against anybody who's not donald trump um it's kind of a similar thing you see people voting for lee zeldin because he's not kathy hochel um and so i think we'll probably see a lot of stuff like that uh you know blake masters jd vance these are good candidates um whether people are voting for them because they love the sort of new conservative messaging you know blake masters talking about why people should be able to uh, how, how people should be able to raise their family on one income i don't think there's a whole lot of people that are going to be voting for blake masters because of that just because this is such a noisy political moment with inflation where it is um with our foreign policy where it is uh, with immigration where it is especially in a state like arizona and with crime where it is yeah i i agree i think even though I don't really trust any of the polls, the exit polls will be most revealing here to indicate on what basis people actually voted. Was it? Will it be primarily that this was a binary decision and there's an anti-incumbency bias because people feel that they're less safe and poorer than they otherwise would be? Or were they actually animated and inspired on a positive level by particular issues? Um, I think, you know, Josh's broad analysis of following the money flows and the fact that you have Democrat money flows going into what were perceived to be the safest of safe areas, uh, the momentum in the polling, certainly, and then the rhetoric from Democrat mouthpieces. I think all of that speaks to a massive red wave that is forming you know, to the extent it does sweep through a place like New York. One of the things that will be interesting that I haven't really heard commented on is, look, there's been massive outflows of presumably people who would have been Zeldin voters out of New York. So to the extent that he actually wins, given that there's been an exodus of potential Zeldin voters, I think that would be perhaps even more telling uh, than just the fact that, wow, a Republican won a, a statewide race uh, in a place like New York. Uh, one other point that I also think is worth considering is early voting. Um, so obviously in Pennsylvania, you had hundreds of thousands of votes uh, that were already cast prior to that John Fetterman debate. Does that end up having a meaningful impact on the ultimate result there in that Senate race? Uh, I understand, and I haven't read it closely, but uh, one of the competitors in the Blake Masters race, the Libertarian, uh, dropped out of the race and has endorsed Blake Masters, but I assume he's still on the ballot. And I don't know what Arizona's early voting looks like, but certainly possible that he might have siphoned off some votes. Uh, and still, even if there wasn't early voting, that people might vote for him, not knowing that he had pulled out of the race. Um, so you know, that speaks to the fact that, as I think I've argued here before, the more unmoored we get from a system of a singular election day with, with very few exceptions, in person, certainly with voter identification, the worse you get in terms of the outcomes of a Republican system. And of course, you know, there's a huge battle that's going on right now at the state levels over that. There's going to be a battle that follows, I assume, in the wake of lawfare 
that will occur in the wake of contested races here. And then we have a Supreme Court case, of course, dealing with state election laws upcoming in December as well. All things to watch going forward. Yeah. So real quick, and then I'll toss right back to you, Ben, for a third segment. But I just cannot uh, you know, underscore that point enough. I mean, early voting fundamentally is absurdly flawed, not just for the Arizona reason, but I mean, how many people in Pennsylvania sent a mail ballot not even seeing that John Fetterman cannot complete a coherent sentence up there. Early voting is fundamentally problematic. And before there was this mail-in balloting controversy, early voting itself was already controversial. So then when you combine early voting with mail-in balloting, we are very, very, very far removed from an ideal scenario. So fodder there for future discussion. But Ben, for now, let's toss it right back to you. Sure. So to this bizarre story out of San Francisco, I guess characteristic of San Francisco, uh, as everyone in the world knows at this point, uh, it appears that there was a scuffle at the Pelosi residence uh, around 2.33 in the morning, West Coast time uh, last week, in which the husband of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, number three in line to be president, uh, ended up assaulted by by all accounts, what appears to be a psychotic individual uh, hit with a hammer. There was apparently a struggle over this hammer. Amazingly, in one aspect of this story is the facts are so much in dispute based upon the initial reporting and sort of the passive voice, even in the government charging documents associated with this, where they note that the door was open to the Pelosi residence and that authorities actually witnessed the scuffle that ultimately resulted in Mr. Pelosi being assaulted and, and I believe having a fractured skull that had to be treated. Um, you know, so obviously the media seized on this immediately. They pulled one line from that apparently occurred uh, in this scuffle where this deranged individual said, where's Nancy? And they immediately linked that to January 6th because they have to, because that's the narrative that the hand that they're playing uh, in the run up to midterm elections, which is obviously cynical and disgusting. Um, there's so many questions, though, about obviously the basic journalism and then also whether we'll actually get any facts around this, given that the FBI appears to have taken over the case from the San Francisco Police Department. So one question was, you know, how was it that Paul Pelosi was able to walk away when this intruder apparently broke into his house and then make a phone call? Uh, there were initial reports that this individual, deranged individual, was in his underwear. Was he or was he not? And obviously, what would that imply about this situation? Um, who opened the door? Because the original reporting was that there was some third party there who opened the door. You wonder what were they doing during this bizarre scenario, this home invasion, apparent home invasion. Uh, and then why was there no security? Why would this not be the most secure location in San Francisco, probably outside you know, the mayor's residence, let's say? Um, and then what of this website that appears to have you know, there's content that surfaced on it. It would seem very close to the time of this attack. By all accounts, this individual essentially lived in something like a hippie commune. Uh, it was a drug abuser, appeared to be mentally ill, was a nudist associated with the Castro district, with, which has all of its own uh, implications to go along with it in, in San Francisco world. Uh, all of these just incredibly bizarre aspects of this case and the initial details, even the way they were reported, almost implied that there was something sketchy here. It's like they couldn't even cover it up. It was such a bizarre story. So they had to leak out these odd aspects of it and leave you to form your own picture of what transpired. Obviously, on the one side, there's the cynical playing up of, oh, he engaged in trafficked in conspiracy theories and the like around COVID and elections, et cetera. So they can use this to say this is MAGA. And this is just another extension of January 6th. 
Uh, on the other hand, of course, we now find out that authorities, at least some sources, have reported that this individual was uh, not only a drug addict and mentally ill, yet able to go to the Pelosi residence and, and apparently invade the house, but that he was an illegal alien in this country. So you put all this together, you know, each side politically can draw from it what it will. I, I guess the questions on this are, yeah, how significant is this story? Does this story matter in the run-up to the midterms? And, and what are the actual takeaways to the extent there are? Because of course, you know, we tend to look at individual anecdotes and then extrapolate a lot from it. We're obviously probably going to take the perspective of this is an only in San Francisco kind of story, and it proves uh, the insanity of the policies that they've pursued there and nationally around open borders. Um, you know, the left is going to say this is all about political violence and that it's all ginned up by Republicans, which, of course, we know is a false narrative after the entire summer of 2020 riots. Um, but I guess the question is, does this matter ultimately to Americans? Should it matter? And to what extent should it matter? In addition to whatever hot takes you might have about what actually transpired there. Well, it matters because Democrats really are trying to make it matter. You've seen corporate media reporters, Chuck Todd and others, immediately do what they've done in the past, which is uh, basically enumerate all of the Republican attack ads on Nancy Pelosi and act as though these are legitimately incitement. Um, and, and sometimes they will just use innuendo to act as though that's incitement or to make the argument that's it, that it's incitement. Um, but other times they will say outright, this, this is incitement. Gavin Newsom tried to make that argument uh, because Jesse Waters had been talking about Paul Pelosi in a way Newsom called dehumanizing. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's transparent propaganda and it's so stupid. Uh, you know what just transpired in, you know, not far from where I grew up in Waukesha is the trial of Daryl Brooks. It's the media barely touched and the media stopped touching as soon as it turned out he may have ideological motivations. I would say we still don't have a really satisfactory answer as to whether he murdered people at a Christmas parade because he was involved in uh, far left ideology, but we didn't want to touch that. We didn't want to talk about how when Democrats use rhetoric that I would consider irresponsible, uh, that expands the definition of white supremacy and hatred and bigotry. You had uh, roughly two dozen people killed in the summer of 2020 during the violence that broke out there. They don't want to talk about that. They won't make the same argument. And, you know, in, to some respect, I think that the rhetoric is too charged on both sides. Sure, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept that. I've been willing to accept that uh, the way former President Trump talked about the election uh, was bad and, and contributed to an atmosphere that ended up, you know, with the, the Capitol being ransacked on January 6th. But but these people are mentally ill. Democrats were not to blame for what happened to Steve Scalise, in my opinion. Democrats were not to blame for what happened to Lee Zeldin, in my opinion, when you have clearly mentally ill people who are affected by highly charged rhetoric coming from Republicans and Democrats. It is not systemic. It is a trap by the, by the fact that we exist in 24-hour media cycles that are run by leftists who need things to cover up their airways and whose every thought just gets turned into a major narrative. So, I, you know, I I think it's absolutely true that we have problems on both sides here, but there's no way that Democrats are going to be able to, in an environment with this high inflation, with gas prices where they are, with crime where it is, turn this into something that uh, even helps a little bit 
on election day. Um, and as Miranda Devine wrote for the New York Post, they're trying to make this into their October surprise, um, uh, you know, trying to sort of make lemonade out of this lemon. Um, I, I do have questions about what happened. I have a question as to why Paul Pelosi was locked in his bathroom, then left. I have a question as to who opened the door when the police knocked on the door, if they were supposedly in a fight over the hammer. Um, I think these things need to be explained. Uh, I, I would love to know how anybody got past security at the Pelosi's house. Do they not have private security uh, that they would call along with the police? It's just, there are a lot of questions, but at the end of the day, if a mentally ill person was uh, in the Pelosi residence, shouldn't matter for the election one way or the other. So I'm really happy you mentioned James Hodgson, the mentally disturbed person who went to that uh, congressional baseball practice to try to shoot up Steve Scalise and others. I, I think you maybe, Emily, forgot even the most notable recent example, which is the nutjob who went to Brett Kavanaugh's house in Maryland from California, do really travel cross country with a Glock with like uh, ties to try to like tie the justice hands behind his back to, to kill him execution style, ended up turning himself in. So, you know, the hypocrisy here is obviously overwhelming. The, the story itself just does not make sense. I mean, I, ever since it broke, the facts simply do not add up. It, my personal speculation, and this is pure speculation, just based on on what I have read, is that I, I think he must have been let in voluntarily. I find it completely implausible that he kind of snuck past security or surveillance or anything like that. So it seems to me, and again, I am just purely speculating here, shooting off the hip, that there was some sort of like drug deal maybe between Paul Pelosi and this guy that went wrong. I mean, apparently he asked to go for permission to go to the bathroom to kind of place a 911 call in their underwear. The details here are just really freaking weird. Let's not forget that Paul Pelosi had that DUI in Napa Valley just like two or three months ago. And some people are speculating that maybe this other dude, this nudist activist, this druggie from Berkeley was involved in that crazy, crazy stuff. Um, the only thing that I will add as well when I first saw this story, when my first instincts, I think I tweeted this out actually, was, you know, thank goodness that San Francisco no, no longer has Chesa Boudin as its district attorney, because, you know, query whether any local charges would have been brought in a situation like this if Chesa had been there in charge. Yeah, I think going back to, you know, this idea of, of how people get supercharged in this climate that we're living in, I mean, don't forget the media's portrayal of some of the worst uh, acts of violence in, in our modern history when it comes to politics. Again, going back to the baseball shooting where my former boss and two of my friends were shot at, you know, on that on that uh, baseball field. But again, when Senator Paul was attacked again by his neighbor, don't forget Casey Hunt, who I think was with N M NBC at the time, called it her favorite political story of the week was Rand Paul's, the, the attack on Rand Paul that broke multiple ribs. Uh, he was struggling to breathe um, it was did a lot of physical damage to him, and you had an, an NBC reporter call it her favorite story of the week. So, to for for them for the media to now pivot and just you know point fingers at Republicans as if somehow you know our supercharged rhetoric is responsible for this is just just completely shameful and gross. Frankly, I do think we are living in a very heightened political climate. I mean, there is no question, um, and I you know I think that's incumbent upon you know. The whole society, I think, as Emily points out, like it's not one person or the other. I mean, it's the whole system we've created for ourselves, this massive echo chamber that includes social media, that includes 24-hour cable news, that includes, you know, how our politics is done, I think just reflects the some of the worst elements of ourselves back. But it's only amplified and and, and made worse by people refusing to take 
you know, to, to turn every act of violence into a partisan cudgel, I think serves no one. Um, but, you know, on the Pelosi story, I have nothing more to add. I am, I, my, my main question is, look, the woman has a security detail, taxpayer funded security detail. Uh, what were the Capitol police doing? Like, how did this guy actually get into her house? Which not, which not only has probably federally funded security, but I assume private security too. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get the full story, but, um, maybe we'll, via a FOIA document, we'll find out in five years. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's likely the case. I feel like we're never really going to get an answer to the story, and it's always just going to be a a question mark. Um, On that note, uh, I believe I am up. The show is just flying right by. So I'm going to start the the topic by actually reading from a piece published in Newsweek. Uh, I'm sure Josh played a role in in getting that onto the the digital page. Um, But I think it does a really good job. So these two paragraphs I'm about to read from do a really good job summarizing a new study, which is the subject of this block, as we call it in the business, um, uh, that is that the Institute for Family Studies and the Wheatley Institute did on how teens are affected by tech, but they applied the lens of intact families to that study, which is something that mainstream researchers absolutely would never, ever do. Um, And that is the benefit of the Institute for Family Studies and the folks over at the Wheatley Institute. They commissioned an original survey. They looked at how children react to big tech versus whether they're in a a family that's intact or one that's broken apart. So let me read you the details right here. The study found that when it comes to tech use and mental health, family structure matters. Kids growing up with married biological parents spend an average of nine hours per day on digital media, social media, texting and video games. That's a whole lot, but it's worse elsewhere. Kids from non-intact families were on social media an average of 10.9 hours a day. Um, And over the span of the year, that's a difference of more than 700 hours. The piece goes on to say, kids from intact marriages were more likely to have clear household rules around tech use, which helps explain the divergence above. 54% of intact families did not allow kids to use devices after bedtime, compared with 50% of non-intact. 49% of intact families put limits on social media use compared with 42% of non-intact. And finally, 59% of intact families barred tech usage during mealtime compared with 51%, 51% of non-intact families. So the point of reading all of that is just to get the numbers out there so you can see how serious this discrepancy is. Tech use, excessive tech use is linked to a whole host of social ills, depression, anxiety, obesity, um, all you can pretty much go down the line, uh, performance in school, whatever it is. We know that uh, spending more time on tech is worse for a person's physical and mental health. Um, and so what you can say, see here is that actually we have some tools to help solve the problem that when parents do X, Y, and Z, it appears to at least uh, really curb the time kids are able to spend on technology. And we know that curbing that time is important to their physical and mental health. So that I think suggests there's a really deep uh, class problem here that we also know um, that the the more educated and wealthy you tend to be, the more likely you are to have an intact family and to be married. Um, And it's very understandable. Well, why if somebody is working third shift multiple jobs they have a harder time uh you know spending the the resources they would need to monitor their child's social media use so i think it's important to kind of acknowledge that is is present in the survey as well brad wilcox uh, came on federalist radio hour to break this down yesterday i would encourage anyone who's interested in uh, having brad flush those numbers out a little more look into it uh, one of the studies uh, co-authors is jean twenge she's been looking into this for years libertarians are constantly attacking her uh, for for being basically too mean to tech and for attributing 
into big tech, uh, things that can't be attributed to big tech. But uh, I think we've sort of gotten past that now and the numbers are becoming clearer and clearer. Uh, there is sort of a bright spot in this study though, which is basically that uh, you can, you, there are things that we can do um, that, that stricter use or that stricter rules by parents and, and deeper awareness from parents is actually a key way to help children. Um, and you know, the IFS and Wheatley suggest some government efforts as well, you know, being able to beef up enforcement of age limits. It's just an easy and obvious thing that should be able to be done. Um, but with that, I'll kick it open to the group. What did you think of the survey? And what did you think? What, what do you think solutions could be? So I think it's absolutely true that parents can and should be doing more. But what I think we've been missing from this whole you know, debate. And I think why it hasn't been such a quick answer, you know, you hear, you hear libertarians say, oh, well, the government can't, you know, mandate parenting, right? Like if your kid's getting poisoned by social media, it's your, it's, you know, it's the parents that need to do something, not the government. And to some extent that's true, but our political discourse hasn't reflected at all, really how dangerous these platforms can be to kids. And a lot of times that's been pushed by the tech companies as well, right? Oh, there's no problem with our platforms. Our platforms are great for kids. Hence why Google is like, you know, infiltrated the schools and every kid in the school has a Chromebook and a YouTube account and all these things. They want to clientize your kid. They don't really necessarily want to care for them. <laughs> and so I think our discourse, if you want parents to be more attentive to this fact, then I think our cultural discourse has to reflect the fact that social media is not necessarily good for development. Um, you know, does it have a role to play? Does it keep people connected? Yes, obviously there's pros and cons, but the cons are really big. And I think there's a big con for, you know, brain development as well. So I think actually starting to talk about this kind of stuff is really important if you want families to act in a way that is constructive with their kids and social media. So I guess I'll make a broader point because I agree with everything that both Emily and Rachel have said. I think that there is a divide, a fundamental divide, and we can kind of paint like a fairly stark, maybe like conservative versus classical liberal or conservative versus libertarian leading folks in the right, whatever divide between those, I think, who kind of in, you know, in Jonah Goldberg fashion, view the Enlightenment as like the miracle of all miracles and kind of view this like long singular arc of history where every new thing that happens, every technological advancement, everything is is ultimately kind of lifting people up, you know, by their bootstraps, the rising tide lifts all lifts all boats, blah, blah, blah. And then I think there was a, a, a more kind of, you know, a, a richer, more traditionalist conservative view, which often, you know, in Burkean fashion, that change for the sake of change is not always necessarily a good thing. Sometimes it is it is incumbent upon us to kind of speak up and say, well, actually, maybe not. I mean, maybe like the mere fact that that technology allows us to do X does not necessarily mean that X is inherently moral or is inherently good or is inherently consistent with national customs, religious traditions, things of that nature there. So that's that's speaking in very abstract terms. I think I think it really is kind of one of the, one of the things that kind of Irving Kristol was getting at in, in his famous Two Cheers for Capitalism book is that. All technological advancements, everything that the market cannot do is not necessarily a good thing. Okay, The fact that pornography is universally accessible on the internet is not a good thing. It is a profoundly bad thing. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It, uh, you know, it, it causes you know, countless teenage males in particular to become addicted, and, and, and the way they take that out with their female partners is horrific. I mean, there's a million—the sex trafficking. I mean, there's a million reasons why pornography is, is harmful and deleterious to society. 
Same thing here for the big tech platforms here. And, um, you know, I agree with everything that Rachel and, and Emily have said. And I, I, I guess to kind of go back to our first segment on the Intercept story and kind of the, the current state of a state corporate fusion when it comes to kind of debanking, deplatforming and so forth. It really is just crying out for more pressing public policy solutions. I mean, we are we would fail if we simply said, you know, well, parents just do this yourselves. You know, you are responsible for protect, for protecting your kids from being be, becoming hopelessly addicted to Instagram. And then, you know, there was a story out of out of the UK, out of Britain. I think it was three or four weeks ago, maybe, where this this poor teenage girl, 14, 15 years old, ends up committing suicide because of like I think digital bullying on Instagram or something. And again, like I think a more like libertarian leaning person would look at that and say like whatever that's maybe that's a little too crass. I mean, obviously they would express sympathy for the fact that someone has uh, committed suicide, but like you know ultimately they would fault the parents for that. I think it is kind of incumbent upon this more traditional kind of Berkey and strand of conservative that we try to do in this podcast to say you know that may or may not be a parental failure, but it's also a societal failure that things like that are happening, and that calls out for public policy solutions. So, you know, one of the my takeaways in looking through the report was this kind of, uh, I think, dovetailed well with what one's assumptions might be that you have when you have two parent families who are clearly invested in you know, policing the conduct of their kids uh, and trying to insulate them to some extent from obviously the detrimental aspects of being addicted to these technologies, that's going to lead to more positive outcomes probably than the alternative to it. Um, there's a question, you know, whether it's more correlative or causative, and it's worth looking at kind of the underlying study to flesh that out. But, but I do think one thing that it underscores is, uh, in particular, in those homes where there are fewer safeguards on kids is the regime has so much control over such a disproportionate percentage of hours of your kids' lives. It's disturbing, it's scary, and it only underscores what we talk about frequently, which is how invested you have to be in your children's education, again, given how many hours a day that actually is, just on a purely crude measure, how many hours in largely public school classrooms and then on devices that are controlled by essentially our worst enemies. Um, that's before you even get to the harmful aspects of the rewiring of one's mind associated with the platforms and then the hardware itself. And I do think that we'll, we'll probably look back to the extent there still are studies being done 50 years and 100 years from now on you know what were the generational consequences to the use of the platforms and the devices, which, of course, we're all guilty of using during this every single podcast. I'm sure all of us take a look at our email briefly, our schedules, our text messages, et cetera, in real time during the show. And luckily, I guess, for a lot of us, we were not addicted to these products uh, from the time that we were five years old plus uh, but you can only imagine that the issues would only compound themselves. But think about our capacity for deep thinking, reflection, reasoning, our emotional health, and then our decision making. How could you even begin to quantify what the impacts are of long-term usage, again, of these platforms and hardware on society itself? I mean, it's incalculable, probably, what the deleterious impact of that is. So for all the upsides, obviously, associated in terms of connectivity and ability to get information at your fingertips and communicate and even effectuate massive change very quickly and rally people to a cause. This, the cost of this, of course, is literally the rewiring of our brands with all manner of impacts that we haven't even begun, I think, to really dig through. So uh, this, is, this study is a cautionary tale, and I think it points to the fact uh, that all of us have an obligation you know, beyond whatever the policy remedies are 
to be seriously invested within our families and be thinking proactively about what we do, given the challenges that we're all going to face uh, with this kind of technological playing field that we're, we've been dealt. I only checked my, my phone while Rachel was talking, just for the record. Let's transition to final thoughts. Who wants to start? Well, with Emily's vote of confidence, I'll give her more time to check her phone and start. But she, <laughs> I wanted to go back. Uh, I just got to be real. Right. Yeah. Well, by the way, the, um, Elon Musk tweeted out during this podcast that he's going to start charging blue checks $8 a month. So pony up, people. I think I'm the only unverified account on this podcast. <laughs> so you're all going to you're going to have to pay. I mean, I, I assume that's pure retaliation—it's pure retaliation, right? From like the verified people at Twitter against you, Rachel. I assume. I, mean, I just—I don't know probably. if it's who—if she's who she says she is. Yeah, I don't think so we've how ever can known. You know? How can you truly know? It's really more of an existential crisis than a Twitter one. But anyway, so I wanted to go back around to to my segment, but I think it also links to the technology stuff we're talking about more broadly because, you know, upon you know more reflections on you know the intercepts reporting and the leak documents that we've seen, and I'm going to be writing more about this at the Federalist this week, but it really is clear that the go the government views these companies as the public square, right? So much of our debate, you know, on the right is, oh, these, you know, are these companies the public square now? Well, the government clearly thinks they are, and that's why they're working with them. And the government cannot have access to this type of control without tools, right? And in this case, the companies are those tools. And so when we talk about how do we prevent this from going forward, first of all, I think, you know, every government official that worked on this should be fired and banned from government for the rest of their lives, because this is just so uh, out of step with how our self-government democracy should function. But more than that, you know, this is why I have argued for years now that you have to have robust enforcement mechanisms in place to prevent the type of concentration over speech and over discourse and over information flows because that the fact that the government has the ability to police this stuff is a direct reflection of the scale at which these companies exist if you break that concentration if you break these companies up and you force mandatory divestiture similar to the what mike lee has proposed with google then you don't get this type of power. You, As much as the government wants to control and will always want to control the narrative, they won't have access to the tools to be able to do it at such a mass scale. So again, I come back to this drum I beat constantly. The right needs to get serious about preventing this type of corporate concentration because big loves big, right? Big government loves, big business loves big government and vice versa. Take away that scale, especially at the tech company level and you remove a lot of these problems. Um, we didn't do that and now we're here. Right. In some ways, the fact that we're here is a direct reflection of the fact that we didn't enforce against antitrust when we had the chance. So I really think the right has to have a paradigm shift on this stuff. And this is just further proof of that. I mean, I I, I certainly agree with, with Rachel on that. I, I think back to this debate that happened at the Federal Society's National Lawyers Convention last year in 2021, where my friend Ashley Keller debated debated someone who's his name is escaping me right now. Um, Rachel, I don't know if you remember his name. He's kind of like an older guy affiliated with, with Cato. Um, and the resolution, if I remember the, the debate resolution correctly, was resolved. Uh, something, so, so, it was something along these lines. Resolve corporate concentration of power is now a greater threat to individual liberty than political concentration of power. And, you know, if you if you Google something along those lines, uh, you'll find it under the Federal Society's YouTube page. And I cannot commend this video strong enough to you, or at a bare minimum, you should watch Ashley Keller's opening 15-minute-ish 
opening monologue, opening statement, because he just kills it. I mean, he just makes the very straightforward erudite case as to why, obviously, you know, all lowercase are Republicans, people who are not monarchists, whatever, should be concerned with the concentration of political power on very rudimentary Madison Federalist 51, you know, if men were angels, blah, 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 on all those grounds. But but it, it is just simply the reality that for all the problems with executive overreach, with judicial activism, whatever, that we currently have in our separation of powers framework right now, it is it's just simply kind of an empirical reality. And this is kind of what I hear Rachel saying, and I wholeheartedly agree with it, that corporate concentration of power, especially in certain industries, is simply a more viable pressing threat right now. I think you're slowly emphasis on slowly starting to see some folks in the Republican in the Republican caucus get it. I mean, certainly there were not uh, as many House Republican votes for the Ken Buck antitrust bills recently that many of us had hoped for. But you know, people like Ken Buck are, are also kind of, I, at least from what I can tell, are, are are gaining steam as far as how influential they are. Jim Banks in Indiana, I think, I think is uh, is often kind of sounding a lot of the right notes on this stuff. Uh, just very quickly, just one other kind of final note here before letting Emily and Ben chime in. I, I, I just want to emphasize that, and I hate to sound like an identity politics person, but like I really am extremely curious to see what the Hispanic vote actually looks like come Tuesday night. Because every indication that we've seen does indicate that this shift is real. The only question is how big is the shift? I mean, if you actually see someone like Adam Laxalt or Joe Lombardo win outright the Hispanic vote in Nevada, which I'm not necessarily predicting, but it could be very close. You know, I mean, think back to when like Roy Teixeira and like all the lefties were saying like demography is destiny. The Republican Party, you know, is going to go extinct five, 10 years from now. I mean, I think people on election night, if that happens, can and should get a big, big laugh out of that doomsday from 10, 15 years ago. So I'll be brief. Originally, I was going to talk a little bit more about Twitter and Elon Musk, as we've all enjoyed uh, him tweaking kind of all of the right people with his tweets. And, you know, the backlash against him has just illustrated once more the idea that, like, the gatekeepers cannot fathom this guy crashing the party and potentially taking one massive communications organ out of their hands. Uh, starting with the the right thing, the first move that he did, which was to shift the personnel at the very top, most responsible for the worst of the pervasive problems within Twitter. Uh, so we'll obviously watch and keep track of the developments, and I'm sure in future episodes be talking about Elon Musk's moves within Twitter. Uh, but just to go back to the election, you know, I always think we have to be careful when we look at individual anecdotes among ourselves, our families, our friends, and then impute into them and try to draw broader uh, implications from them. That said, a couple of data points that I think are telling uh, happened to me just this morning. A friend of mine was commuting into his office in New York City. He sent a picture to me and several of my friends of homeless person lying down in the subway car. And this person apparently then uh, lit up and smoked a joint in the middle of that car. Um, this was literally the day after Mayor Eric Adams in New York had tweeted out a picture of himself cleaning up trash on a subway car you know, as if evincing that he's really dedicated to fixing up the city. Uh, such a perfect juxtaposition there of the reality. Closer to home, uh, friends of ours, neighbors within our town, which is a very low crime town, but around 15 or 20 minutes from some very high crime areas, sent us picture uh, from their security feed of someone trying to steal packages, two people actually trying to steal packages from their house and break in and actually trying to pry open their door uh, 3.30 in the morning yesterday. 
again, low crime town, but a town where we've seen, for example, uh, police signs put up indicating lock your doors because people have been breaking into cars where individuals have left their keys in them. I can only imagine that if we see that, and we obviously don't need to be convinced of the folly of the progressive crime agenda uh, or so-called crime agenda, that Americans everywhere are seeing this. And so then the question becomes with this election, uh, will enough people be mugged by reality? What reality is it that will be mugging them? Is it more of the crime? Is it more of the schools? Is it more of the disastrous economy, wokeness writ large in every single institution? And then to what extent will Republicans, uh, should they inherit the benefits of that, actually respond to it with concrete policies? And when they put those policies forth, will they argue for them persuasively, effectively, compellingly, and then be rewarded for it again two years down the road. I think it's an open question at this point, but it's a question we ought to be tracking going forward. I want to pick up on a thread uh, from the conversation about uh, the Pelosi invasion. And just, it, it does really bother me that uh, I was looking into this again this weekend. You know, there's the the deaths that occurred in the summer of 2020 and the sort of riots in general of 2020. I think if you ask people how many, die, how many people died uh, because of that, I don't think people know the answer, but the answer is, is seriously, I, I've seen an analysis that's as high as 25, um, but it's at least, uh, you know, more than a dozen. And that's stunning because we just never talk about it. And what we don't talk about, uh, because I think we all sort of agreed that this is a politically charged moment where there are actors on both sides. I know people hate to hear both sides because it sounds like a cope. It sounds like a cop out. It sounds like an excuse, but it's uh, that doesn't change the fact that it's true. Uh, there are actors on both sides who are just irresponsible with rhetoric. I think a lot of that comes from 24 hour news and social media. And the fact that as we talk about here all the time, when people are miserable, when they are obese, when they are mentally ill, when they feel pain every single day of their lives for some reasons that are absolutely downstream of our politics, how do you think they're going to vote? How do you think they're going to tweet? How do you think they're just going to behave in public? Um, this is obviously a politically charged moment for a lot of reasons, but uh, we never talk about the fact ever that the left's expansion of definitions of things like bigotry and hatred and violence is, is very much a part it has to play a role and it will perhaps play an even bigger role in people's decisions to take matters into their own hands again when people are clearly mentally ill and aren't taking literal marching orders from uh you know either donald trump or joe biden that's their problem um and i'm not going to blame it on other people but i do think the the left in particular uh, in the same way that i didn't like the the way that donald trump was talking about the election and i still don't like the way he talks about the election in the, in the same way, the media never, ever cares when, and in fact, they are a part of it. it, just referring to everything as bigotry, referring to everything as uh, white supremacy, referring to everything as violence. Uh, you know what a whole lot of people do when they hear the guy at the bar is a white supremacist? They pop him in the freaking face and they should. Um, that's what happens. And when we start defining everything that way, 
um, the stakes are ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up. And the left is never, ever held to account for any of that, despite the fact that is prolific in our dialogue. Now it has been mainstreamed and normalized and we never, ever talk about that. And the media never wants to uh, hold the left accountable for that just because it's now so mainstream. Uh, on that note, on that happy note, uh, on behalf of Ben, Rachel, and Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.